What's going on, friends? Welcome to another episode of The Genius Life. I'm your host, Max Lugavere, a filmmaker, health and science journalist, and the author of the New York Times bestselling book, Genius Foods. On this episode of the show, I'm super excited to introduce you to Matt Richtel. Matt is a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist, a New York Times bestselling author, and the author of the new book, An Elegant Defense, The Extraordinary New Science of the Immune System. In this episode, Matt and I are going to discuss how seemingly unrelated conditions like cancer, autoimmunity, and even HIV are connected, why you should be very skeptical of products that claim to boost your immune system, the specific tactics that you can use to harness the power of the immune system to potentially protect yourself against the major modern diseases, and so much more. Matt is a masterful storyteller, and this is the first time that we've really gone into depth on the power of the immune system on The Genius Life, so I'm super excited for you to listen to it. But before we get into it, I want to give a shout out to the sponsor of this episode of the show. This episode is brought to you by my friends at Perfect Keto. I'm a big fan of many of the products that Perfect Keto makes. Lately, I've really been digging their whey protein powders. Their whey protein powders are made with 100% whey protein isolate from purely grass-fed cows. Now, whey protein isolate, if you're going to do whey protein, is my favorite of all the options that are out there because it has virtually zero lactose or casein in it. These are the constituents of dairy protein in general that tend to be problematic for some people. The other great thing about whey isolate is that there's a higher percentage of protein content because all of the, you know, it's, it's the isolated protein. Everything else has essentially been stripped away. Now, the best time to consume whey protein would be in the post-workout window because it is very highly bioavailable. It provides a... Uh, very high concentration of leucine, which is an anabolic amino acid, meaning it helps you grow muscle, and it's very rapidly digested. I tend to prefer whey protein these days because of some research that suggests that um, many vegan protein powders, but not all, mind you, are contaminated with heavy metals. So consider giving Perfect Keto's whey protein a try. You can go to perfectketo.com max20 to save 20% off of their whey protein and everything else on their website. You can also use promo code max20 for the same discount. Again, that's perfectketo.com max20 or promo code max20. You'll get to save 20% off of everything at perfectketo.com. All right, guys, I'm super excited to get into this episode of the show with you guys. If you wouldn't mind, please support The Genius Life by leaving a rating and review on iTunes or wherever you are listening to this episode of the show. Join my newsletter at maxlugavere.com. By doing so, I'm going to send you a key list of 11 supplements that you can use to potentially boost your brain power and spread the word about The Genius Life. I mean, this episode is going to provide so much actionable and prescriptive stuff that you can use to really bolster your immune system. So why keep all of that incredible information to yourself? Spread the word. And in doing so, well, you're going to rack up some serious karma points. All right, guys, that's all for me. I'm excited to get into it with Mr. Matt Richtel. And um, yeah, let's jam. Matt, thank you so much for being here with me, man. This is a pleasure. I'm excited. I am excited too. I really appreciate you having me. We both, I think, share common ground in that we have sort of attacked as a career, topics that we become passionate about and we investigate deeply and ask questions. And I'm assuming that's what led to you writing An Elegant Defense. Yeah. Um, I, I, the, the slightly longer story, which I'll tell you if you would like in a moment, um, uh, I will tell you in a moment if you'd like. But the shorter <laughs> story is yes to what you just said. And I, um, someone once said to me, you seem very, um, um, 
frustrated when you don't get to the core of an issue. And so in this case, while I wanted to learn about immunotherapy to start, uh, I realized it was ultimately dissatisfying if I didn't understand the immune system. So here we are three years later. But all of that came from this uh, pretty remarkable um, story about a friend of mine from high school. Should I give you that backstory? I would like nothing more. Okay, so um, I think you've you've read some of this. Is that right? Or or you read yes. about Jason? Yes. Let me let me tell you about Jason. Yeah. So when I was in high school, um, I had a close group of there were seven of us, six and and myself, and sort of the lead dog in this in this pack of high schoolers was a kid named Jason, and this was in Colorado. And Max, I tell you, Jason was Mister Everything. He was all-state baseball and all-state basketball, and he was a great-looking guy, and he got all the girls, and he had this one blemish, and it was a big one. When we were in 11th grade, his dad died of cancer, or actually before 12th grade. So I can remember where I was when um, standing when I heard the news that Jason's dad died, and um, you know, Jason on, on the outside wore it pretty well, and then the seven of us sort of you know, went our separate ways off to college and stayed in touch. All right. So you got, you got the sort of the main character here rooted a little bit. Yeah. He's kind of like Paul Walker in varsity blues. He's, I yeah, get he's it. that guy. So then fast forward 30 or so years about the very age, not about the very age, the very age his dad got cancer. Jason got cancer, a different kind. He got Hodgkin's, which is supposed to be curable. Um, but Jason was not cured. He went through four years or so of chemo and radiation and was just battered and bruised. And and the, the thoroughbred took everything cancer threw at him. And at the end of it all, he had 15 pounds of Hodgkin's lymphoma in his back, doubling every few weeks. And his, his oncologist in Denver um, pulled Jason into the room and said, Jason, I love you, man, um, but it's over. It's time to go home and die. And essentially prepared him for hospice care, met with his family, got everybody ready for this. There was one drug out there, Max. Um, the drug's called nivulumab. It was one of the, or it is one of the early immunotherapy drugs um, that seeks to tinker with the immune system in order to uh, change how it, um, how it interacts with cancer. And, and the family was able to get it off label, not prescription. Jason took it. It was beyond a Hail Mary. And uh, Jason in bed a few weeks later is awakened by his girlfriend who says, Jason, you got to get out of bed. You're not going to believe this. Your tumor's gone. And like, yeah. Wow. wow. You can, I mean, there's not even, an, there's not even a word for it. Like Lazarus, Jason rose from the grave. So here I was, um, you know, Jason's buddy, increasingly so over the prior two, three years as he'd been dealing with cancer, uh, we'd all gotten closer again. And here I am as a New York Times health and science reporter, and I pick up my pen and I say, what, what the heck just happened? I, I got to understand this. And the short version of the book, that, if that was the long version for how it started, the short version is I couldn't, I couldn't stop by understanding immunotherapy. I had to understand the immune system. And the book is called An Elegant Defense, and it uses Jason and three other pretty remarkable but very different medical stories and pairs them with the deepest science 
from the most luminous immunologists going back about 70 years who put all this stuff together to explain how our immune system works. First of all, what, what a story. Is that, it, it was, was what happened to Jason what inspired you to write this book and then and yeah, investigate what, further? What his, his, that, that moment crystallized something I had been seeing and reading about elsewhere. I just want to say this about why I write. I don't merely write. In fact, I don't, um, I don't chiefly write to understand information. I chiefly write because I'm interested in emotion and narrative arc. Hmm. And so just to write about science generally is not enough for me. But when I watched the life and death story of Jason and then, and then learned about these other characters I can describe shortly, it was their emotional resonance that really drove me. So yes, in short, Jason drove me but it's emotion underlying this science. After all, why does science matter? It matters because we live, we die, we have longevity, we don't, we grow close to people, we lose people. That's what's underneath all of this. And so that's what drives me and drove me. Wow. So what, I mean, why don't we start out by defining the immune system. I mean, I, I think we all kind of have this this term in our vernacular, but I think it's, you know, it can be misunderstood. Um, so what, what function does the immune system play within our body before we get into immunotherapy? Yeah, I learned so much um, about this and almost everything I learned um, exposed a misconception that I had. And Max, my wife is a doctor. And and I will say that in some cases, the stuff I told her about exposed misconceptions or, or just kind of broad-based ideas that even she had. And that is because immunology has emerged so strongly in recent years, and the idea of the immune system has changed. So all of this leads to the question, what is the immune system? And I want to say that in part, it must be defined by what it is not. It is not a war machine. And that's the biggest mis misconception I have. Yes, it does prosecute war in the sense that it is attacking alien organisms that would be a threat to our survival. But more than that, the immune system is a peacekeeper. It is uh, a network as sophisticated as any in the world, and here I would include the human brain, that uses deep telecommunications and a multitude of actors, spies, peacekeepers, <laughs> attackers, um, really nasty bouncers, and some ballet dancers to try to keep peace and harmony inside the human body. And the word that most comes to mind, um, and, and before I tell you the word, I want to tell you, if you hear this word, there's a decent chance you're speaking to an immunologist. The word is homeostasis. And that word has to do with finding stability. Now, why is this so important? Can I sort of pause and explain, while this may seem, seem self-evident, why this concept is so important? Please. Here's the challenge for the immune system. We are surrounded 
by other organisms. And again, this may seem self-evident, but I have come to see myself very differently in the world than I had prior to doing this book. I see myself almost now like like um, in the movie The Matrix. You know how they're the ones and zeros all over the place? <laughs> yeah. I see myself covered by, moving through, and um, embodying and having internalized organisms all over the place. Bacteria, virus, parasites, cells. And if you think about it, if the immune system was at war with everything all the time, the only thing it could do was press the nuclear button and we'd all be dead. You can't be in harmony with the matrix of the universe if you are always on the attack. Right. Um, is, now, is that does that feel like, um, to you, Max, does that feel like no duh or is that am I the only one who had that misconception? It do, no, I would not say that it feels like no duh. I would say it's it's mind-blowing. It's awe-inspiring. It's it's just incredibly it, it's a testament to how elegant, you know, as it, you know, the, the word that you very appropriate, appropriately chose for your book title. It's it's just how magnificent we are as a species or as as living, you know, entities. I mean, the fact that we are not privy to this incredible system that is going on below the level of, of consciousness that is keeping everything functioning properly so that we can go on and you know continue to use our dating apps and refresh Instagram 600 times a day and uh, you know you're not incidentally I don't know if the dating apps are as good at keeping stability homeostasis. <laughs> well but I, I yeah. love all the lang- I love all the language you use. It's no less than magnificent and beneath the surface how delicately balanced this organism has developed to become. And now I think about it in a few words as a as the love child of a bouncer and a ballet dancer. Wow. And it sits so lightly and it has taken no less than 500 million years to take this shape. But that 500 million years is an interesting date here because you have to go back that far, Max, to essentially find a different immune system, which is what the non-jawed vertebrates had. So what does that tell you? This tells at least... This is my takeaway from that. If for essentially 480 million years, we've had more or less the same immune system, it means it's doing its job very well. So let's think a little bit deeper, if you'll permit. I'd like to just describe a few more specifics when I talk about homeostasis and what the job of the immune system is, or rather describe some things that really surprised me in the execution of that. Yes, please. I would, I would love nothing more. All right. So the biggest one for me is that you've got all these molecules in your immune system. You know, I, I walked into this book thinking, well, there's a T cell and a B cell, and I had pot passing knowledge of that, and white blood cells. But what's in particular very interesting is, as I alluded to earlier, there are a mountain of molecules. And they have all kinds of separate functions within the immune system. Major, minor, they are ever-present, and they are always on or always capable of being on 
But the big takeaway for me from this, Max, is many, many of the molecules in the immune system are designed to turn it off. And that is one of the biggest takeaways from me of this entire book. Um, and I'll put it in a, I'm going to come back to that point, but just put a fine point on something. You always hear people say, boost your immune system, you know, buy this thing to boost your immune system. Right. I think that is irresponsible to say the least. Uh, Explain. Well, a boosted immune system is inflammation. Inflammation is fever. It's autoimmunity. Um, it's it's it could even be your body supporting a cancer. Uh, it could be dementia. Um, tinker with the immune system at your own risk is is a comment you'll hear me make a couple of times probably in this conversation. But to bring it back to the molecules, one of the reasons we don't want to boost our immune system is oftentimes the immune system doesn't want to boost itself. What it wants to do is find that elegant balance that allows it to confront organisms that would be a threat by doing as little collateral damage as possible. That is the job of the immune system 14 minutes into the question you asked me. <laughs> And no, and I, and I really appreciate that. So, I mean, the idea of boosting your immune system where, you know, it's, it's basically, to use another word, it's activating your immune system. And where the immune system is concerned, there's no, there's, it's not really a, um, there's no free ride, right? There's always collateral damage. There's no free ride. And in fact, I would argue, having learned all this, that the collateral damage can be so profound, so immediate, and so powerful that it is more risky than anything you could ingest yourself. You are living with a police state inside your body that has the capacity to go nuclear if the wrong cascade of events happens. Tinker with the immune system at your own risk. This doesn't mean, Max, that you don't want to support your immune system, which is a very different um, verb. And in fact, I happened to be in the grocery store the other day and saw some drinks um, that profess to support your immune system. I can't tell you whether those drinks actually do that. The research is very early on on these claims, but I will credit whatever that company was, and, and I'm not being frank, I can't remember what, that they at least pick the right verb. So That's, yeah. Just by way of example, and I know, just to tell you a quick story from um, two weeks ago, we had a, a, my kids had a break, and I mentioned that we're from Colorado. We live in San Francisco now, but we went back to Colorado to ski, and I felt the scratch in the back of my throat. And uh, I knew that probably the very best thing I could do, because these are, in the end, you'll, you'll realize, and we could talk about the science behind it, but the, but the things that most support your immune system are rest foremost, keeping your stress low, uh, certain kind of dietary things you can do, absolutely not smoking. But there was really nothing I could do with my throat scratchy and a virus coming on that I could ingest, or to put it another way, Here's a bitter pill to swallow. There is no pill to swallow. The very best thing I could have done to support my immune system 
is not ski and then not eat French fries covered in melted cheddar cheese and bacon washed down with a jalapeno and fused margarita. But what did I do? You skied and you ate <laughs> and you ate the fries. I skied and I ate pub food. And by about the third day, I woke up in the middle of the night or the third night at 4 a.m. and I was a freaking mess. Now, there was nothing I could have done to um, boost my immune system. And quite frankly, part of the reason I felt like a freaking mess is because I was feeling the effects of inflammation. I was feeling feverish. I was feeling fatigue. I was feeling the onset of all those molecules coursing through my body. I could have supported my immune system. I couldn't resist seeing my 10-year-old and 8-year-old ski. Make your own decision about the trade-offs. But the mechanism to me was at least clear. I could have supported my immune system. I chose to undermine it. Yeah. You mentioned that there are a few dietary things that you can do to support your immune system. Can you touch on what those might be? Yeah. I mean, first of all, um, I want to go back to something I said earlier. This is not a magic pill book uh, or a an instant solution book. This is a, a deep science and story book. And to that end, um, I want to tell you that what you often hear about dietary supplements is probably not backed up by science. So the stuff I'm going to tell you about diet is drawn from, um, again, the most luminous immunologists, the people who run the NIH, the people who are the leading authorities in the world, the Nobel Prize winners. Here are a few things to know. First of all, um, you don't want to eat, you want to eat natural foods as often as you might. And here's the reason why. Natural foods have natural byproducts. When you introduce more processed, less natural foods, you are giving your body something to react to, or you are giving your immune system something to react to. Going back to first principles in this, when your body has to react, you risk collateral damage. One more thing. You should eat and expose yourself to lots of natural things. This is a side note I'll come to in a minute if you want to talk about the hygiene hypothesis, but we should not be nearly as germophobic as we are. It can be leading to allergy and even autoimmunity. But let me come back to food. The other thing about food to know is indirectly, obesity appears to be playing a significant role in causing inflammation. Inflammation is an excessive immune response, which can in turn lead to all kinds of things. But here's the punchline. You can die earlier. And part of the reason is because of this inflammation. So what should you eat? You should eat natural foods and you should try to not be obese. And the problem with processed foods is they are obesogenic in that they seduce you into eating more. They leave you unfulfilled while giving you many calories and all the stuff your listeners likely know about. Well said. So you touched a little bit on the hygiene hypothesis and, you know, when discussing the immune system, I mean, today I think there's a lot of um, people that are suffering the consequences of autoimmune reactions, yeah. um, which I'm sure you no doubt uh, discuss in the book. Can you describe what autoimmunity is and, you know, in your view, based on your research, 
what might be contributing to the seemingly soaring rates of autoimmunity that we're seeing in the in the first world? Yeah. So first, let me tell you about there are two women in this book who are um, who both suffer autoimmunity. So here's Jason, whose immune system didn't do enough. Um, and he sort of symbolizes that. And it required immunotherapy to give him support. Linda and Meredith, two women I'll describe in a minute, were are people whose immune systems, in effect, did too much. Uh, Linda, one, one has lupus, one has rheumatoid arthritis. Both of them are tremendous symbols of a group of people I refer to as the invisible women. And um, this is not unfairly gender specific in that autoimmunity often it tends to hit women more than men for a reason I'll describe in a minute. But before I tell you about that, the reason I call them invisible women is that for many, many, many years, the sufferers of autoimmunity were literally and figuratively invisible. They were literally invisible um, because we couldn't find anything inside of them that was going wrong. So hmm. you'd go to the doctor and say, um, I, have, I have agonizing pain. I, I, my joints are killing me. Uh, I am so tired. And if you think back to some of the cultural stigmas and, and viewpoints that went along, it was like, uh, you know, it's all in your head. Uh, your, uh, uh, you need some more rest. Um, there, there were lots of books written about women's hysteria. And I don't know what part of that was autoimmunity. That was the sort of figurative part of invisible, the literal, I mean, that was the literal part there was nothing inside the women. There's nothing. There's no pathogen. There's no virus. There's no bacteria. There's no, there's no parasite. It's, it's themselves attacking themselves. And, and, and uh, I apologize to everyone for that grammar. That was my grammar attacking myself. <laughs> but they were also, so they were invisible because society didn't really see them and we couldn't see anything inside them. Now, that is very fortunately starting to change, but only somewhat, because there are so many conditions now or, or, or symptoms people are experiencing that are outgrowths of autoimmunity, which I'll, I'll, I'll define more broadly in one second, but we still don't know exactly what those are. Broadly speaking, autoimmunity is this, is, is, is your immune system treating part of your body, some of your tissue, some of your cells as if they were an alien threat. So they're going to town on you, even though there is no such alien threat. There are a variety of reasons why this can get stoked, and we don't understand them all, and we don't understand many of the symptoms people are experiencing or what causes them. But for a moment, why women? Well, this is also based on research, but still speculative in some ways. Women are thought to have stronger immune systems, in part because they are conferring immunity on babies. So here wow. they are, caregivers. They've got to confer this immunity on babies. Perhaps they played a different kind of caregiver role in an evolutionary sense. It's one reason they may live longer on the whole, but they also may, um, may suffer these immune, autoimmune symptoms that are no small thing. 
Um, and I, I, I guess I, I want to rephrase that, not symptoms, diseases. These are not mere symptoms. Um, the other thing is and there's more immune function associated with that genetic material, I am told and outline a little bit in the book. We don't know why broadly women are suffering more autoimmunity, but these are some of the reasons we think about. And finally, there might be more fatty tissue on women than men, and those that fatty tissue may have a more immune cells. So those are some of the reasons. Men are not immune to this, no pun intended. Well, but it's interesting because I think that you're right in the sense that like from an from an evolutionary psychology standpoint, men are more disposable and have been, right? That's what my wife says. <laughs> well, I mean, we just we we are. I mean, a, a woman is so much more uh you know, they, they breed wisely, men breed widely. And for really a, a woman, it's a woman's job to decide how the species is going to march forward. It's really on them. We're just these, you know, I mean, we provide the genetic material, but it's, you're completely right in that they are there for the, you know, they know without a shadow of a doubt that the baby is theirs, that they give birth to. The bond between a mother and a, and a child is, I mean, you know, I'm not a dad, but I can imagine that it's it's pretty strong. Um, if not, and, and, and through it's through milk and through connection that immunity gets conferred. So through that mere physical, so so these are reasons why women may have stronger immunity. Let's go back to the beginning of this conversation. Stronger immunity is a decided mixed blessing. So Linda and Meredith in this book each have their own remarkable stories. Linda was a a professional golfer who won the Ulster Open at one point, which is the Irish Open. Um, and now, and I mean, in the book, you'll see pictures of her hands and what her autoimmunity has done to her. But she's also been salvaged in a way by many of the, by some of the same drug mechanisms that helped raise Jason from the grave. Um, and and Meredith is is an incredible woman, a, a writer and a, a poetic in the way she describes the world, who has continued to um, em, uh, be emblematic of how difficult the struggle is against autoimmunity. She has had no quick fix, um, and I don't. I don't want to give their stories away, but they but they are remarkable. Um, th- just to go back for a second, the another thing I learned here is the connection between say cancer and autoimmunity the the immune system and the way it reacts to the world is the river that runs through virtually every aspect of human health and you start to see these insane connections between um you know cancer which you would think would have nothing to do with autoimmunity and autoimmunity and how they may be impacted by the very same drug um having done that whole um had that whole discussion. Did I owe you something about the hygiene hypothesis? Well, I think it would be good to kind of touch on it in the context of the increasing uh, prevalence of autoimmunity and the you know speculation as to why that may, why we may be seeing that. So there are two there are two issues here. They're related, and again, the the, the reasonable people are still trying to figure this out. But allergies are. Um, definitely on the rise, and and the the thought there has to has to do with the hygiene hypothesis and autoimmunity. Some autoimmunity is on the rise too, and that 
may or may not be as linked to the hygiene hypothesis, but one thing I want to say about autoimmunity is it may well be on the rise along with allergy because we're living longer. And what it means when we live longer, Max, is that the immune system, which was in effect tailored to, say, get us to reproductive age and a little bit beyond, is now dealing with a, uh, a much different set of circumstances over a longer period of time. And because the immune system is poised to react, um, is poised to learn, it is taking in much more information, much more data than it ever has. And it may just not be su well suited for the longevity that we have, um, that we are experiencing. And so over time, this delicate balance might lose its step and lead to more autoimmunity and lead to more allergy, even if we weren't um, indulging in some germophobia and excessive hygiene. So I just want to make that point broadly. Yeah, but the, so how do you reconcile that with the fact that, I mean, it's, I, I, I believe, and I, I can't cite specific data, but you know, like in the world's blue zones, for example, where they're living a long time, are they, are they, according to your research, experiencing increased rates of autoimmunity as well, or is autoimmunity rare in those? Well, I, think, I mean, because if, if you're saying that it's a function, simply a function of living longer, then I, I feel like you would expect to see more autoimmunity in the world's blue zones. Um, you know what, I don't, Max, I don't know the term blue zones. It's, they're, it's basically a term given to, uh, you know, a few of the parts of the world that have been identified for having a you know long living people that tend to be free of age related disease and disability ah. um, so okinawa japan it was a term coined by dan butner who's a national geographic journalist Can I, is that, but you know is it too late for me to move there <laughs> it's never too late well okay so i just want to say you just taught me something and i don't know that i can answer that question i'm tempted to google it while we're talking <laughs> um so um my my short answer is that if you as you age you are likely to see changes in your immune system got it um and another another kind of example i'll give you at this is in the united states if, oh, sorry, in, I don't know where this research was done, but it was in industrialized countries. If you exercise regularly, you will see increased production of immune cells. And here, not in a bad way, in the sense that as you age, your immune cells, like every part of your body, begin to have a less effective function. So, you actually wind up supporting your immune system by exercising, but not necessarily, but by replenishing it, but not by excessively promoting it. Does that distinction make sense? Absolutely. So let me go, but let me return to the hygiene hypothesis and where we are causing the immune system some challenge um, by creating imbalance through. Um, I'll call it over-industrialization. Yes. Industrialization is always this mixed blessing. Always. If you take cars, uh, they, have, they serve so many purposes, but it's the most, the most deadly thing you'll do all day or all year in the United States or all day is probably drive. It's the riskiest thing you can do because you, 
35,000 people a year die and, you know, however many millions are seriously hurt. Right. Um, Antibiotics are an insane industrial proposition, but now when we're taking them, we're creating resistant, um, resistant infection and we're monkeying around with our microbiome and processed food, which I mentioned earlier, more calories to more people, but at the risk of obesity, which is a gigantic killer as we age. Right. And by extension, we discovered that a cleanlier environment is a huge boon to our health. And I even went back and I, I, uh, I found this biblical passage about washing your hands. Hmm. Um, and you can see the early efforts. And I mean here, no, no religious statements one way or another. But if you look at cultures that don't eat cow or don't eat pig or do ritual hand washing, um, you can imagine how much of that might have been born out of an understanding that infection gets passed along through these many, um, you know, through through un- undercooked meat or uh, bacteria or or parasite in your environment. So moving forward through the decades and the epochs, we learn to be cleaner, 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 cleaner. It's quite understandable that we would seek to create such a hygienic environment that we would have no pathogen around us. I mean, it just it's kind of a natural understanding of the way we conceptualize the world. Does that make sense? Yep. So then coming along with that, and I document this in the book, is a really incredible marketing campaign that uh, came around, and I think it was maybe the 1940s or 50s, and you start to see Lysol rise and all this stuff that basically says, you know, make it gleam. But here's here's what was unclear until um, some years later and not very many years ago is that when we did that, we cheated and we cheat our immune system of some really basic learning with our environment. Hmm. Now, among the key principles of the immune system is that it learns and it must learn. Vaccines work, although they are rare. The, the, the great ones are rare. They're hard to find. But when they work, they work because they have taught the immune system to respond in an effective way to something that would otherwise kill a human being. It's a mind-boggling advance. And it is based on the principle of learning. And the way that learning happens is that it provokes a response in the immune system that the immune system learns to then replicate when confronted with the problem. Most times, what we interact with in the world is in smallpox. We don't have to worry about dying from um, you know, a pathogen that's in the dirt that gets on our hands that we then you know, wipe across our mouth um, without thinking as we're you know, walking across the street. But what that interaction does with our immune system is teaches us how to calibrate the difference between the innocuous, the slightly threatening, the more threatening, and DEFCON 5. Wait, which one? Is DEFCON 5 or DEFCON 1 the bad one? DEFCON 5 is, uh, well, I actually have no idea. Okay, but... whichever the DEFCON you don't want. But 
go back, returning to what I was saying earlier about learning to cooperate with the world, you can't learn how to measure your response if you don't get a lot of inputs. And so what winds up happening, so goes the theory, and there's good evidence explained in this book to back it up, is that you get an overzealous response to organisms, all those matrices, that matrix of all those ones and zeros and organisms and parasites and viruses and bacteria that float among us and on us and inside of us, you get an overzealous response because our immune system has not gone to school. It has not gotten an elementary school degree, let alone a graduate degree. It has been starved of the learning needed to calibrate. So one, one researcher told me, your kid should eat a pound of dirt. And he, I said, are you serious? <laughs> he said, maybe. The other one that, that I had to ask, and I actually named a chapter after it when I realized it's not so dumb of a question and silly as it may sound is, should you pick your nose? So, Max, can I ask you a question? Yeah, please. Should you pick your nose? I mean, you know, I'm not going to say I've never picked my nose. Um, can I ask you this? Can we just get? Yeah. Can, should we get real for twelve seconds? Please, let's get really. Let's get as real as we can. Don't you sometimes get that itch? Like it really itches, and you want to pick it. Oh, absolutely. All right. So I said, I said, I says to this researcher, I was like. It feels like a really natural impulse that we're always being told not to do by one of our parents or somebody else. Is that natural impulse possibly part of the immune system's learning process? And he almost did a head slap, Max. He's like, we got to ask that question. Maybe, maybe that is part of the learning process. And I'm telling you, I'm not just trying to justify my own behavior. So anyway, I get into that a little bit, um, and I get into some some specifics about some of the things we might do to try individually to not starve ourselves of interaction with the world, but also collectively to not starve ourselves. And the reason why we collectively don't want to starve ourselves is our of of these natural environments is that over time it may change our collective microbiome. It may change the bacteria that informs us and helps us cooperate with the world. Would you agree that the, that the microbiome helps to, in a sense, train our immune systems? Yes, 100%. Another startling um, uh, revelation for me, and, and I, again, I, I suspect some of this stuff won't be to some of your listeners, but because it's become so much more prominent in the last few years, I've tried to document it by way of example um, in the book. But the microbiome, what makes what what we've just taught, what we're talking about here so startling is we thought for so long that the gut was um, separate and apart from the immune system. And we thought it had to be because your gut is populated by bacteria. It's got tons, billions of bacterial cells. And the problem with bacterial cells getting outside of your gut is if they get in your blood, it can be called something like called sepsis. And I know everybody knows 
you know, that could kill you pretty easily. So we thought your, your gut was separate and apart from the immune system. But what we've learned, um, and we're still so learning here, is that a healthy gut really wants a healthy immune system because your bacteria want the host to be in good shape. And so the gut appears, well, sorry, when I say the gut, bacteria in the gut appear to be sending signals, transmissions as if across universes to help tell the molecules inside the immune system what to do. Full freaking stop. Mind boggling. Amazing. You've got cooperative effort between your microbiome and your immune system to keep your host, namely you, alive and functioning properly. You know, like I'm going to just do this here. Every, uh, maybe people can picture That's the sound of my head exploding. <laughs> so, it, is, um, it is indeed revelatory. It's, I mean, it's amazing. It's amazing that this, and it, and, and it also, you know, the funny part of it is to me is having learned it, it completely stands to reason. Of course, this universe of quasi alien species would like its galaxy to be safe. Why wouldn't it promote the common good? It's really only a handful, a tiny fraction of these organisms in the world that would ha that would undo us, that would be our pathogens, that would kill us. And so um, that's why the immune system is so tailored to cooperate. Most of what it interacts with wants it to thrive as well. And I'll just tell you, can I just introduce this fourth character? I've told you about Jason who sprung from the dead and his immune system was insufficient. Yes. To, to destroy cancer. And the two women, Linda and Meredith, whose immune systems were too much. And then there's Bob, and his immune system is just right. So Bob Hoff is a remarkable character, so remarkable that the National Institutes of Health in build, Building 10, this, this place of just a citadel of amazing revelation and study, and Nobel Prize winners and all the rest, they study Bob Hoff's immune system. Bob Hoff got HIV the night of Halloween 1977, and he never got AIDS, and he never really got a symptom. Bob Hoff's immune system is miraculous. HIV is called a retrovirus, and I won't go into all the details, but basically it preys on the immune system itself. Somehow. Bob Hoff's immune system was able to do what virtually no other human being's immune system is able to do. He and a handful of others are known as elite controllers, and they leap to the rescue in a way of extraordinary effectiveness. Um, so those are the those round out the characters: Jason, whose immune system was insufficient; Linda and Meredith, who whose were too much. And then the third bear, if you will, is the one whose immune system was just right. That's, I mean, how many people are there that are, that are quote unquote, super controllers in terms of percentage? Oh, tiny, tiny, tiny. Um, um, I'm not sure we know all how many max, because the reason is that we don't know how many in the population, 
because um, it's a it's a fairly modest part of the population that winds up being um, in a position to get HIV in the first place, either through unprotected sex or um, certain kinds of drug use. So we don't really have a good feel, but it's a tiny fraction, tiny, tiny fraction. I mean, Bob will talk about burying hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of friends and standing there wondering, why not me? Yeah. Wow. Well, we've talked. So we've talked about the con- the potential consequences of an underactive immune system. You know, p- cancer as one potential. We've talked about the consequences of an overactive immune system: allergies, autoimmunity, and being uh, a super controller where your immune system is just that badass that it could fight off against HIV. And I love that you've offered for my audience some really prescriptive ways of um, nurturing uh, and you know to use your words supporting the immune system. You've talked about you know, having a, a, a more sort of liberal attitude around um, hygiene and dirt. You know, if you have a child, maybe, uh, I don't know, Matt, are you recommending we feed our children dirt? Is that, or, or, or not yet? I, I will uh, I'll pretend I'm testifying in front of Congress. I cannot recall. I have no comment. No, I'm not, I'm really not doing that, but I am saying that, um, I am saying with one exception I'll mention that, um, that I would encourage people to be less germophobic. It's not having a head cold actually may not be serving you that badly. It may be informing your immune system. I'm not urging you to get sick, but I'm saying that the learning that goes along with your kids getting sick, you occasionally getting sick yeah, will serve you in the long run. The one exception is I really would be careful about the handling of raw meat. I've gotten much more careful about that. Um, uh, that is, that is where I employ a different kind of infection control. Yes. I do want to mention one more thing. We don't have to belabor, but I can't say enough about it. And that's sleep. Um, there's an entire chapter on sleep in this book and its connection to the immune system. And, um, and, and some of the reasons we don't sleep and how costly it is. And you can begin to see the impacts of sleep and stress um, on your immune system, well-documented through science almost immediately. Almost immediately after a poor night's sleep, you can begin to see a cascade. Almost immediately um, after experiencing stress, you can see a cascade. And, and, and those mechanisms have to do with firing of hormones that, that um, cause your immune system to withdraw. And the reason they cause your immune system to withdraw is when your body gets into a position of fight or flight, it shifts the resources to more acute survival. May I put it in the terms of evolutionary biology? Yeah, please. If you're running, if you're running from a lion, you don't really care about a head cold. And in fact, your body wants to shift its resources to getting away from the lion. The problem, the problem today is, in a few words, there is no lion. But we often can turn a circumstance into one. So. Um, I won't, be, as I say, I won't belabor it, but there's chapters here on sleep and stress that really document how to use those to your advantage to support your immune system and not undermine it. Critically important. Um, so sleep, massive, avoiding packaged processed foods. You talked about exercise, how exercise can independently, uh, support your immune system and immune health. Yeah. So, you know, thank you for all of this incredible information that you shared. 
How, um, you know, one of my, one of my remaining questions would be how has your, you talked about meat and handling raw meat, but what are some other ways that your life has changed since going down this rabbit hole and learning everything that you've learned about, uh, how best to support the immune system? Yeah. Part of it is in, part of it is in child rearing. I've got a 10 year old and an eight year old. I may have, I may have mentioned them earlier, but I think we are less anal retentive about the germ thing. Um, you know, more like wash your hands, less like squirt stuff all over you. Um, uh, we are, I, I think I'm more careful when we eat meat out to think about where it comes from. And the reason for that is somewhat separate from this, but there is a lot of noxious bacteria that can be um, carried on unclean meat. So I just say that. But the other when it comes to kids is we really are hygienic about sleep because it does play such an immediate role um, in, um, in, our, in our health. And then when it comes to stress, I want to say this. Um, screens have pre created a, a huge benefit. Going back to this industrialization question I was saying earlier, huge upsides. But they are taking a they're adding a huge level to stress in our lives. And for me, I am I am I've got to uh, be disciplined about how I limit the stress and the stress I allow to be channeled through that device. And here's a very specific example. If I, let's say I go do some exercise, if it's a walk or I get on a machine, more so, uh, more so than anything else, I play tennis, which doesn't have a machine involved, but I'll try to drop the device because I am, all the good I'm doing myself with my exercise, if I'm also sort of sifting and taking up uh, and using my brain for information, I am not letting my body go in a kind of stress release that serves my immune system. Now, I don't want people to think this is like hokey, um, seancey stuff. Here's why I want to defend this as concretely, insanely val valuable. I mentioned the, the adrenal hormones earlier. You've got to find a way to get them out of your body because what they do is can repress an immune response. So, Max, you and I have been talking for near an hour here. I can feel how elevated my intensity is now. I'm going to have to find a way to let it go. And I've tried to do this on a regular basis. I have a luxury others may not because I work at home. But I do believe that we have more power over our own health through discipline than many of us are willing to admit or take agency over. And there are many steps we are able to take. Not everybody, by all means, many people are wrestling with things. But when you read Meredith's story and her struggles with autoimmunity and the way she has tried so hard to figure out the best, most disciplined steps, they are not easy. But she has stuck with them because they have benefited her enormously. What I've tried to do in this book um, I hope I've given you a couple concrete things, but what I've tried to do in the book is give people some of the basic science so that they can make their own calls. Can I return to Jason for a second? Please. Here's what happens in some cancers. Cancer plays a trick on the immune system. It uses some of those same signals I described earlier, those same molecules, to send a signal to the immune system 
to not attack the tumor. Hmm. So the, the, remember, here's this whole organism, this whole immune system that is approaching alien organisms very judiciously. It has a lot of breaks. The cancer takes advantage of those breaks and says, don't attack me. I'm not alien. I'm self. And not only does the, does the immune system not attack, it can't even nurture and serve to help structure and build tissue for the malignancy. Hmm. It's a very delicate system. It's been turned just to the other side of the equation to support and not destroy. These immunotherapy drugs are so remarkable because in the case of cancer, to simplify it, they will turn those breaks off. And all of a sudden, overnight, the cancer may attack the tumor as no chemotherapy could have ever done. By, by attacking it as if it was alien, as it is, in the very first place. In the case of autoimmunity, Linda, who you'll read about in this book, used it for exactly the same reason, and the breaks were put on her immune system such that it stopped attacking her own tissue. But in all these cases, going back to the first principle, and I hear myself using the phrase going back to, but because it's all rooted in the same stuff, Jason did not come out of that unscathed. And I don't want to give away how each of these stories ends, but you tinker with the immune system at your own risk. Immunotherapy is so incredibly powerful. And, um, you know, I mean, would you agree that we're just at the very beginning of really understanding uh, how to harness it? I mean, it's my, it's my um, understanding that not all, you know, we don't want to give the audience the, the, um, concept the the perception that all cancers at this moment are treatable via these therapies but hopefully in the future that will be something that we'll be able to offer every patient is that well is that correct let's 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 give the proper hope first yes the hope is extraordinary yes um i am i am glad for every human being who will ever get cancer um and i'm sure many and many of us will if we live long enough that these possibilities exist. They are, they are no less than miraculous. Uh, however, um, we are learning that they cannot be deployed without enormous care and tremendous risk. Hmm. And so will everybody get one of these? We're going to get better and better at administering them and figuring out how to, how to manage the side effects. But I really would say to everybody Please read the fine print. Please ask the tough questions. Please know what you're getting into. Um, you know, it's, it's, I, the, the, the pharmaceutical companies play a really mixed role here. They've done some ingenious work in getting some of this out, but they're also trying to sell stuff. And um, it's, I, I want patients to be really informed. Um, there are, there's a really, there's a really powerful lesson out of the immune system. You know, I've been, the reason I paused there, Max, is I was going to tell you what it is, but it's the punchline of this book. I, I don't want to give away the biggest takeaway of this book about the lesson from the immune system. It doesn't come through to the last couple pages, but it does, it will help people decide what and when they want to um, have deployed on them or deploy on themselves for the sake of a life-saving mission. 
Um, the immune system has a lot to say about what and when. So um, let me let me hide the football on that. Yeah, well, no, I mean, no, uh, no need to apologize. I mean, you've given us already such uh, incredible, actionable, prescriptive information. And, you know, your book is wonderful. So thank you for your groundbreaking research. Um, I've got just one last question for you, which is a question that I asked everybody who's on this podcast. But before we get to that, um, where can listeners uh, find you on the social web? We know that your book, An Elegant Defense, is available for pre-order right now. So all you guys listening to this, you should go out, pre-order it wherever you you know buy books. Um, but how else can listeners connect with you? Maybe ask questions um, yeah. if they want to do if they want to do that. Well, I I I believe it's part of the journalistic duty to answer and interact and 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 be challenged where necessary and so forth. So. Um, Twitter is M Rickdal. I'm on Facebook, uh, Matt Rickdal, and there are two sites there, but it's the personal one. I've abandoned the professional one. And then, um, Matt, should I give uh, mattrickdal.com has my email address and, um, any other contact information, um, for, you know, agents and other things that, so www.mattrickdal.com and I'm all out there. Awesome. Thanks again for writing the book. It's really wonderful. And, you know, I know that people are going to be um, super psyched to have this this tome in their hands. Um, and I haven't really, honestly, you guys, like I haven't read or even seen that many other books that really pay homage to the immune system in the way that Matt's does. So be sure to pick it up. Um, so the last question, Matt, thank you again for being here. What does it mean to you to live a genius life. It's a bit more philosophical, but what, you know, what does living the genius life mean to you? I think genius, your show notwithstanding, is an idea that hardworking Hollywood writers came up with because they dreamed themselves that they would be geniuses who didn't have to work that hard. And in reality, living the genius life is the pursuit of passion with um, an enormous amount of discipline, care, uh, ethics, and dedication. So I, the reason I quibble with the term genius is always asked, like, is so-and-so a genius? Is so-and-so a genius? I think that there's an idea in the world of genius that was invented by people who work really hard. <laughs> and... And most geniuses do. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Um, well, thank you. That's definitely uh, among the more unique answers to that question that I've received. So <laughs> you can throw it out with the rest. <laughs> it's food for thought. Um, and and I actually I couldn't agree more. I think it's um, we need to throw out our preconceptions of what of what the word genius means. You know, you don't have to be named Albert Einstein to be considered a genius and have a Nat Geo show about you. Uh, under your belt. You know, I think wh whatever it is that you do in your life, you can be genius at. And so that's really what I try to drive home with this podcast. And and, uh, and, and can I say one more thing? Yes. Again, paying homage to the name of the show, but I think being genius is beside the point. And one of the, one of the points I make in this book, um, there's a lot of layers to it. Um, but one of them is that the closer you get to being to to realizing and expressing who you are, um, the 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 healthier you wind up, and you know I would argue that 
you you are the genius, you are the divine spark that you are. And mourning the idea that you're not some other kind of genius or not a genius at all, really, in the end, is as undermining of a conceit as there could be. I think that's brilliantly said, and I, I couldn't agree more. I couldn't agree more. Um, yeah, well, that about wraps up our time. So I just want to thank you again, Matt, for um, spending the last hour with me and sharing your uh, insights. To all you guys out there in podcast land, thank you so much for tuning in as always. I appreciate your time and attention. Please take a moment to share this episode of the show. Highlight your favorite um, quote from it, from Matt or from I. Tag us each on Instagram or Twitter or whatever your social platform is of choice. Spread the word about the genius life. And uh, make sure you pick up Matt's book, An Elegant Defense, again, which is available for, uh, for pre-order now. And I will catch all of you on the next episode of The Genius Life. Peace.